Welcome to the Unstoppable Recording Machine Podcast. And now your host, Al Levy. I want to take a second to tell you about something that I am very excited about, and it's the URM Summit. Once a year, we hold an event where hundreds of producers from all over the world come together for four days of networking, workshops, seminars, and hanging out. This industry is all about relationships, and think about it. What could you gain from getting to personally know your peers from all over the world who have the same goals as you, the same struggles as you, and who can help inspire you, motivate you, as well as become potential professional collaborators? This year's summit is on November 9th through 11th at the Las Vegas Westin, which is just one block off of the Strip, and it's going to be even bigger and better than ever. We're anticipating even more producers, plus a lineup of amazing guests like Jens Bogren, Chris Crummett, Machine, Forrester Savell, Michael Agian, Dave Otero, Billy Decker, Chris Adler, Mary Zimmer, Mike Mowry, Jesse Cannon, Blasco, Jason Leckberg, Jesco Lohan, and more. And of course, our musical guest, the one and only Ark Spire. So get your summit tickets now at urmsummit.com, and we will see you in Vegas. So with me today is Mr. Jeff Balding, who is a producer among producers, multi-platinum, eight times Grammy nominated, has worked with a laundry list of superstars, such as the Eagles, Don Henley, Peter Frampton, Taylor Swift, Blake Shelton, and of course, Megadeth. Jeff, thank you for being on the Unstoppable Recording Machine podcast. Appreciate you being here. Man, absolutely. Glad to be here. So you've worked with quite a few heavy hitters. It's an impressive list. Is there anything that you find in common between these types of overachievers? Like, I know that they're all unique. You know, they're all unique. They're their own artists, but... Is there anything that you've noticed that just sets them apart or something that tangible that you could even notice in an up-and-coming artist that lets you say, yeah, that person has what these big deal superstars have? One common thread I notice is that a lot of the really successful artists that's been around and has, has a sustained career, and I mean, besides, you know, I mean, obviously, great music, great songs. Yeah, that, that aside. Talent. Is, is a big part of it. That aside is the focus on their career and the input that they have in their career. They they don't really rely on, you know, they rely on people around them. They have they have a good team around them, but they also they know their fan base. They know their tribe, should I say? And they're 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 very involved in making decisions in their career and where they want it to go and what they believe in it. And those are those are the ones that I see have a really long sustained career that that they get it and they're involved and they're not relying on somebody else to drive the bus in a sense. That matches exactly what I've noticed too, and what I try to tell people who are students of ours coming up. We get lots of questions about when should I hire a publicist or I want to hire a publicist, I want to get a manager, all this stuff, before they're even ready. And what they don't seem to understand that I try to help people understand is a publicist can only really get publicity when there is something to publicize. They they don't create your story for you. You They take yeah. your story and then get it out to people with a manager. 
manager needs something to manage. A label needs a uh, needs an artist to to exploit. Yeah, that's exactly it. I mean, exploit in a in in the good sense of the word. Um, and it reminds me of something that. I heard Eddie Kramer say, actually, he came to speak when I was at Berkeley. He gave like a master class and actually asked him this question, like what sets in your mind, what, what made Jimi Hendrix and Jimmy Page, what set them apart? Like what, what, but obviously yeah. besides the great music, what, what was it that they had? Because I mean, you know, it's Jimi Hendrix and Jimmy Page, all timers. And yeah. he said they had vision, like whereas most Artists can see 15 feet ahead of them. These guys could see three football fields ahead. And they just knew. They had the vision for where things were going and how things were supposed to be. And so they were true leaders. Yeah, and even on a more granular level, I think they really know. It, it comes down to the song and, and what they want to, the story they want to tell, what they want to communicate to fans, to the world. And knowing how to take care of their tribe and how to speak to their their core fan base, and that that's really the key. I mean, you, you look at some of these bands like the Eagles and stuff. I mean, the songs were amazing, and and their memories in people's lives when that song played or what they used that song for. And I, I think that's the case with a lot of artists and the ones, you know, and even even Megadeth. With the, Dave knows his fan base and knows. What songs and what what works with them, and I think that's I think that's crucial. You know, you take care of the core, and then you 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 go out from there. But no one and Taylor Swift too. I mean, that's who I was about to say. She is amazing at it. Talk about somebody that knows. Yeah, somebody that knows what songs she needs to be singing and what who what songs are her is from the beginning. I mean, that was one of the most amazing things in the beginning of her career was she got that early on. And I think that's that's a that's a big deal in sustaining a career and taking a career up to the level she has. You know, with Taylor Swift, I think it's interesting too that her her marketing game and I, I don't mean like album marketing. I just mean like her social media, like the types of video interviews that she does, the way she portrays herself, it's so perfect for the type of person who would buy Taylor Swift music. And I, you know, I, I come from the metal world, which is a very uh, closed off world. And sometimes they'll talk shit about artists like Taylor Swift. And what they're failing to realize is that's not for you. She's not reaching out to you with yeah. what she's doing. You're not her target demographic in the least. Right. So talk all the shit you want, but this is not some metal band who put out a record that you just don't like. This is someone making music for a whole other community, and she has it nailed. Absolutely. Absolutely, yeah. When you say that they understand what music is right, I think this is interesting with the pop artists especially, because there's this notion out there that a lot of them don't write their own songs. And I know that a lot of them do have teams of writers coming in. That taken into consideration, how do you see their artistic vision being channeled through having other people's songs or working with other songwriters? How do they keep it true to who they are? Yeah, I mean, I've worked with artists that 
are very involved in writing their songs and to artists, big artists that never wrote a word. But what they knew is they knew what was authentic. They knew mm-hmm. what they could say and they, it was authentic to who they were and it was something they wanted to say. And I think that's, man, that's a, that's a, you know, that's a foundational part of an artist is knowing what you want to say. And when you figure that out and you find the things that connect to your fans, especially, like I say, the core tribe, then you're, you're on your way. You know, and that's, I think that's the hardest thing for a lot of young artists to figure out is, it's like, and when I have young folks, you know, that, that go, you know, I want to, I want to be an artist. I want, want to figure this out. I want to do it. And it's like, well, what do you want to say? That's one of the first questions I ask because I, I think that's essential. It's like, because there's authenticity. If you're not being authentic, man, people, they get, they'll, they'll smell that out right away. Oh, yes. And it's, it's got to be authentic to you. And I, I, I think you can get that. And I know you can from outside writing. But you have to connect with the song, and we have songs we hear that we connect with and go, "Oh man, absolutely!" That's me, over and over. And I think, you know, I've 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 worked with some artists too that are that are big artists that I've, I've taken them hit songs, and it's like they'll go, and there's one artist in particular that would go, you know, that's a hit song, but it's not me, and that's that's a brave decision there, you know. And I've seen songs turned down by artists that other artists cut, and they become a number one, and some of them were. I don't like that song. It just didn't connect with him. It wasn't, you know, it wasn't that it wasn't a hit song. It just didn't connect and wasn't right for him. And so those those are the kind of decisions that really, you know, take some guts to make by an artist. When you're working with a, I guess, developing artist, and you ask them the uh, "what do you want to say" question, and the answer is vague, how do you deal with it as a producer? Man, you well, you you got to start a conversation at that point, and find out really, you know, one you kind of find out who they are and where they came from because where they came from is part of who they are. You know, that's part of the authenticity. I, I've, there's one artist I worked with uh, on a developmental side that kept wanting to be something that they weren't, and it was it's like the minute they brought in some of their past. And how they grew up, the music they listened to, some of that influence into their music, people connected to it. And it's the most amazing thing when you when you when you see it happen. It's like, but then they still didn't want to do that. They kept pushing back the other way, and uh, it it never did work, you know, for them. And I, I I really think that's because they they weren't being authentic to who they were. It's really really interesting how the audience just has a. It's almost like a bullshit meter. And it's not mm-hmm. based on anything really, I guess, quantifiable, I think. It's just kind of a feeling, I think. And But they, they feel that authenticity. You know when you're hearing a song, if the artist really, really means it. Just like when you're watching a movie, mm-hmm. if you forget you're watching a movie and you really think... You really feel like what's going on on the screen is actually ha- happening. I mean, it could be the most unrealistic thing on earth, but l- like, yeah. but you're watching it and you're in it. That's the artist connecting with the material and making it their own. And you can tell. Absolutely. You can tell when it's bullshit. Yeah. Yeah. Why, why do you think that that artist resisted it? 
do you have any any thoughts on that? Like what or what have you noticed about artists that do tend to resist that? I think they they have a vision of something they want to be, and you know what I've noticed in talking to a lot of artists is you know whether it's a rock artist before they go on stage they're listening to Merle Haggard or a country artist that's listening to metal. I mean, all, all artists are influenced by other kinds of music or may have a, a kind of, mu- you know, something that connects with them musically but is not who they are. And I think uh, some of the artists, they have a favorite kind of, maybe they have a, maybe they want to be metal or maybe they want to be heavy rock, but they come, their roots and everything may be country, but they really want to be what they love instead of who they are. And I think I think hopefully that makes sense and kind of clarifies that. I think a lot of artists they don't want to be authentic in a, in a sense. They want to become sort of the Disney character they want to be. Well, I've seen this happen even in the metal world. I remember this band. I'm not going to name them, but they were they got really big really fast around 2007. They were a band that they caught the MySpace wave. They were one of the first bands to effectively use MySpace for marketing, and it spread like wildfire. And these kids were like 17, 16, still in high school, and they hadn't really released anything on a label because of MySpace. Suddenly there's 500, then 1,000, then 1,500, then 2,000 people showing up to their shows like packed and it was just out of nowhere um and th- this band played a style of metal that was heavy but you know it was it was mainstream within that little world and they would go on tour with some legit heavy hitters because they got because their numbers were so good they would be put on real tours and so they developed this chip yeah. on their shoulder where they wanted to be legit they just wanted the legit credentials of being like a real technical metal band. And so they kept pushing their music in that direction, um, which they weren't ever really great at that type of stuff because it's not them, but they just so badly wanted to be accepted by that crowd that they completely forgot about and abandoned what did work. And a very promising career just fell apart very quickly. Uh, I've seen it happen. Yeah, and it's all because they were pushing to be something that they weren't. Well, and that—that's the case. Even for you know, if, if there's students that I speak to about that that want to, you know, whether they want to be a mixer, a producer, uh, an engineer, they try to emulate someone. And th- the thing is, if you're trying to emulate whoever it is, whether it's a mixer or a producer, if you're trying to really in in detail emulate them. They're still going to kick your butt. Of course they are. I mean, that's them. They're being they're being they're being authentic to who they are. They're putting forward what they hear. Now that doesn't say you can't be inspired because we're all inspired by different things and different people and and what they do. But you have to digest that and make that your own. But the minute you try to emulate them, you're going to lose every time. I don't know how familiar you are with what I do, uh, what my company does, but we have proven this. Um, so we have a program called Nail the Mix where uh, uh-huh. every single month we have a great mixer showing how he mixed a great song. And at the beginning of the month, we release the raw multi-tracks. We get them licensed and, and everything. So the students get to do their own uh, practice mixes too. 
And you would think that after years of doing this program, that we would be creating clones. If it were possible to actually emulate somebody, you would think that we would be creating clones because they would just watch the person's session. They have the multi-tracks, just copy, you know, you could just screenshot everything or just go step by step by step and recreate it. And I know that some of them try to do it and it never works. It never works because all the micro decisions and the thought behind yeah. uh, behind everything that's the part that they can't share the you know the way that the person actually hears it is unique to his brain and that part you can't share through you can't share period so all their understanding is how he solved certain problems and what they did at that point in time but they're missing the 10 20 30 years of develop hearing and thinking about the topic that got them to the point where they made these types of decisions. And so, yeah, no clones, yeah. it never works. Yeah. And, and it's the person's ear too. I mean, you know, and even, even ourselves, if, 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 you know, this, it's been maybe three years ago, I had to do a, I've set up a mix for a demo for a speaker company at a, at one of the trade shows that I took out to do. And so it was a mix I'd done on the console, on an analog console. So I had to match it in the box so I could take it. So I, I mixed it and then did a little bit. After I got it mixed, I did a little ABN to pull a few levels here and there. But what was amazing was I did different things than I did on the desk because I didn't have the desk, but it ended up sounding the same from the bottom end perspective, everything. And it just sort of, I just sort of thought, you know, gear, and believe me, I'm, I'm a big fan of gear and what analog gear, and, and, you know, I came out of the analog days anyway. But I was totally amazed. If they weren't side by side, I wouldn't have, wouldn't have known, you know? And, and it, it, it is the ear, you know, to go back to what we were talking about. It's, it's the ear that, of the person and the experience and their thought process of what they're really thinking and hearing inside their head. That pulls things the way they pull, and that that puts kind of this. It's almost like you put a spirit into what you're doing, mm-hmm. whether it's the production or the mix or whatever. And otherwise, it's kind of a lifeless body of a mix if you don't have that. If you're just sort of setting up the parameters and matching, you know, just somebody copying what someone did. Absolutely. So, how do you develop that? How, I guess as an artist or as a, especially as a mixer or producer, how do you think that that's Best developed, man. I think that's that's. I think that takes time. Absolutely. You know, it's developed over time, and it's the influences, and and your opinion of going. I love what that person does. Something about that makes moves me. What is it that moves? You sort of ingest that and go, okay. And then you find maybe a twist on it that you go, oh, that's that's it. And it's something that you do to it that makes it have a life that's authentic to yourself. You know, not to get too far into that sounds sounds blue or purple. <laughs> you know, it, it is one of those things where you where you, you 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 do digest a lot of stuff and ingest it, and then you when it comes out of you, it's different. And I think that's the same for a musician. I mean, even you know, you talk about maybe a guitar player that's so influenced by certain players, and you'll hear things that remind you of that player, but it's not exactly what that person would have played because they're not that person. 
because they're not that person and they're making it their own. So I think that's the thing. You have to make things your own and, and how you hear them. And sometimes how you hear it, I mean, I, I, I came up this way. When I started, you know, I, w- I was one of those guys that somehow fell into a, a, a chief engineer gig at a studio and a little studio, I never assisted. So I never really, you know, had that opportunity for, to learn from other people. But the, there was a staff producer at this studio and they had a staff engineer. So when the studio wasn't booked, we would just listen to music and, and just find something we were blown away with, you know, and go, let's try to do that. And we'd figure out some way to do what we felt we were hearing. And when I look back, I mean, that, that was actually a good thing. I always regretted never learning under somebody, you know, great. But that was one of the things that I go, you know what? Maybe that was all right. It's sort of like boot camp, you know, guerrilla style and figure it out. So how did that happen? How did you just fall into that gig? Because I feel like back in those days, the the template for becoming a successful producer was to come up through the industry system where you're, you know, the runner, then the intern, then the assistant, then the engineer, yeah. on and on. Yeah, I think I came in. I think I came into the industry at the end okay. of that era, when that was it was still happening. But it was kind of the end of that era where you did, you know, most people did come in that way. Um, what I'd done is uh, I went to Belmont University in Nashville. And they had a music business program. You know, it started a few years before I got in it. But I'd done some demos with some of the, you know, some of my friends there for a band they had, and the band got signed. And the the record label that signed them had just lost their chief engineer in their studio. So I I never did ask, but I'm assuming they heard that because I got hired right after they got signed. So I'm assuming that, you know, the demo tapes that I'd I'd cut and mixed and and just even the band going, yeah, this guy's great. You know, it's like, I, I think that's what influenced me getting hired there, you know? How did you get good enough to even be in that situation? Like, where where did that come from? You know, just a lot of hours in the studio. Man, there, if, if it wasn't, uh, the university had, had a, one studio, but there was some studios on the Music Row in Nashville, and one in particular would let us have time from, you know, whenever the client finished, which could be midnight or 1 a.m. to 6 a.m. in the morning. So I just set the alarm, get up and go to the studio and and work, you know, and do stuff, cut whatever anybody wanted. I mean, how old were you? Oh, geez. Well, I'd been 19, 20. Yeah, I was figuring you're in your teens when that would have happened. How old were you when you started recording? Oh, well, that would have been that would have been around around 18, 19. Okay. I was I played guitar, uh, you know, and did the usual rock band and stuff. You know, before that, and I'm guessing that in the band you guys would go to studios. Well, no, I mean we were in a small town. We go to the basement <laughs> with a mixer and four mics and try to do something. But I, I never really got that deep into recording until I went to Nashville. So was this even like in your set of life goals? Like I'm going to become a big ass producer, or it just sort of kind of happened? Well, I mean, I don't think that decision happened until, like I said, I went to Nashville because yeah. I think the realization was, you know, I very sm- grew up in a very small town, and so there wasn't much to do, and and music was definitely a passion. 
As, as, you, as you're sitting there, as a, I think as a kid, I was just sitting there going, man, what do I want to do? And you're looking at, you know, you got everybody, whether it's your parents or whoever, going, now you need to get a good job at a good company mm-hmm. and retire and, you know, the usual, you know, routine there. And I just couldn't get a feeling for that. I kept, you know, and, and somebody said to me, well, what do you want to do? And I said, man, I'd love to, like, you know, work in the studio, make records, whether musician, produce, whatever. I just love to do that. And it was kind of the line that they said next was, so what's stopping you? <laughs> it's like, figure it out. It's like, yeah, that's right. I can't make a decision to head that way. So I started looking around and, you know, two of the band guys went to MTSU. Um, they had a program as well and, and still do. And uh, I, I, de- I decided on Belmont. And, uh, you know, the, the roommate that I got when I went to school, he was a senior and was into engineering and, and everything. So uh, he, he showed me a lot about engineering, introduced me to a lot of his friends, and uh, I tutored him through math. So <laughs> we, we traded off. Nice. I love that answer, the what's stopping you. It's such a powerful thing to ask somebody when they're kind of unsure of things. And I've thought about it a lot because, you know, we'll put, I'll put out a piece of content, for instance, um, maybe an analysis of something and put it up on YouTube. And you'll get some responses that are like, I, w- I want you to do this and this and this and this. Uh, and they'll list a bunch of things that I have zero interest in that I would never talk about that, you know, it's just not going to happen. It's not me at all. Yeah. And I'm all, my answer is always, nobody's stopping you from doing it. If you want to yeah. see that in the world, go do it. It's And it's the same with uh, when I talk to students about they want to do this, but something's stopping them, or really they're just stopping themselves. That's I always try to get them to figure out what's what's stopping you. And usually just the decision is what's stopping them. Yeah, well, it was very impactful to me. It's like when when they said that, it's like, it's like a light bulb went off or something. It's just a switch. Yeah. And it's like... Oh, well, yeah, I can do that. (laughs) I've always found it interesting that some people don't realize that you can just make a decision. Hopefully they figure it out at some point, hopefully while they're young. But I don't think that that's a default wiring for everybody. Um, Yeah. I think some people are born with it, and uh, God bless them, they're lucky. Um, But I think that a whole lot more people don't have they don't have that realization it's not innate it's just they'd like to do something but they don't realize that they could just go do it and when they do realize it is yeah it's a magical thing it could be completely life changing like it was for you yeah no it is it's a very powerful thing when you realize that and when you're young i think the other thing is you, you got nothing to lose and it's hard to see that when you're in the moment you know, even even at a young age, when you're in the moment to go, well, I really can. I mean, I picked up. When was it? Um, you know, late '80s. Uh, it was. I, I always, for some reason, I always wanted to go to L.A., which everybody did then, because that was where the you know the big music scene was happening, and the courage to do that. And it's this one day is like, you know what? I'm just going up and go. And you know, I was having a lot of success. And a friend of mine who was uh, uh, an assistant for a producer I'd worked with. 
He goes, well, I'll go with you. And it's like, all right. And three or four weeks later, we had a U-Haul loaded up and we were gone, you know, on our way to California. Especially at a young age, you've got nothing to lose. And I think even throughout your life, you know, it's like, man, if you feel something, go for it. I mean, the worst that can happen is that it doesn't work out. That's right. And you learn from it. Yeah. And you, you go on to the next. That's it. The thing I've noticed is that the anticipation of a failure is a lot worse than the actual failure. Uh, I've, <laughs> you know, because I've been pretty fearless about when I want something, I go for it. And um, I haven't been afraid to leave certain careers or jobs or situations when I realized that there was something else to do. And it hasn't always worked out. It's It has worked out other times. But I mean, whenever it hasn't worked out, it really wasn't that bad. It, because, I mean, it, it's cliche to say you learn from it, but it's true. You really do. And it sets you up for the next move. It's so much more experience. You you have to know what what struggle is and you don't really get to understand it in that context until you take leaps of faith in yourself. Yeah, that's it. Yeah, and sometimes it takes the leap of faith to open things up before the next thing has room to make it in. Absolutely. You know, it's pretty, it's crazy, and that's a hard walk to walk, but that's, that's, that's it. We have quite a few students who, um, who, when they first started with us, were not professionals who now a few years later are. And they, like I'm thinking of a few individuals specifically who bef- with, before they had a career, they did move to L.A. and they dropped their life were some, in some cases cross-country. And they made it happen in L.A. I'm very proud of them, but they took the leap. No risk, no reward, really. It, and it's a big deal if you're, going to drop your life and move across country or mm-hmm. to another yeah. country. But, I mean, you got to do what you got to do. The If the opportunity is somewhere else and you want that opportunity, well, you know, it's probably not going to come to you. Yeah, I always tell people, you know, when they ask, well, what should I do, how to get in, all this stuff. It's like, I think, I think the best thing you can do is go, if wherever that is, and whatever genre, whatever style of music, whatever producer, whatever, whoever it is, Go to where the bar is set for you, where you think the bar is being set. Go there, you know, go get coffee, whatever it takes. Just be in that room. Get in that room when you can and around those people. Meet that circle of people. But at least you're going to learn where the bar really is and how they get there. And then all of a sudden, that's because it reminds me, you know, they, they always tell the story of where they would, at Abbey Road, they would bring the people that were, you know, the new people into mastering first so they could learn where the bar was, and then they'd move them over into assisting and engineering and stuff. Interesting. That's I did not know that. I think that's, you know, well, I'm not saying it's, it's true, but that's what everybody always tells me. And I think it's a great concept because, and I think it's the same in, in what we do, whether it's producing, engineering, whatever. I, th- I think you got to get around where the bar is being set so that you can really just get that imprinted in your mind what that is and get your it helps your ears train calibrate and all of a sudden you 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 know the mark you got to hit you're not going to stop short because a lot of people bring stuff and go what do you think of this mix or what do you think of this production or what do you think of this and it's this falls so short and they're thinking well what don't you like I thought it was great well it's because they they haven't really had that bar imprinted in their mind and their ears were 
they're going, oh, I don't hear it the rest of the way. You know, they're not hearing the, the, what that level needs to be. And then you can push hard and persistence is the next thing, you know, it's just being persistent and getting there and not giving up and knowing that you're not going to do it in two hours, you know, that, that you may have to redo and redo and redo until you go, that's it. I'm feeling the emotion. I'm feeling it in my gut. It's, it's working now. But yeah, I, th- I think it's, I think that's crucial. And if, you know, got one friend, he, he went and worked a job for a year, year and a half, saved up every, every penny so he could quit for a year and go intern where at, the, at a great place where he knew he wanted to be with the people he wanted to be with and he could afford to do that. And I think you've got to immerse yourself in that place, you know? And that's the other side of it. So if you never really had a mentor, how did you learn where the bar was? <laughs> <laughs> I, I, the, the producer and friend that I worked with in that studio, we would, we would like I said, he, he, he would push me. And you know the funny the the one of the funny lines was okay that sounds like a, a demo how do you, how do we make it sound like a record <laughs> it's like okay let's figure that out so it was a lot of just being pushed and being persistent and going no that's not it no that's not it and having you know somebody to push you it's like a workout partner in the gym it's like somebody to go okay one more rep one more rep and just pushing you to the limit and being picky and you know fortunately this was someone. That, that had that mindset of detail and every little detail in it, you know? And kind of like, kind of like a mutt leg, you know, where, where it's like there, not only is it the note, but it's the front and the backside and the top and the bottom of the note too that you're looking at and learning that detail. And once you get into that mindset of detail, and then after you do that, you got to learn to let go of the detail and also understand vibe. Man, where do you draw the line between detail and vibe? Because I have noticed that a lot of people get lost in the details and the technicality of everything, and they do forget the big picture feel. Um, how do you think that, where do you think the line is, or, or better yet, how do you think you ascend from being so, I guess, enveloped in the details to where you still take care of the details, but that big picture is, you know, the the North Star, what you're really paying attention to. You know, I, I, that's a hard one to put into words, but I, I think simply, I think the detail is is getting rid of the distractions. So if I'm feeling something, if I'm feeling a vocal overall, say, you know, a great verse, a great chorus, and I, I'm feeling it, it's moving me, but on on one of the lines, all of a sudden, I come out of that experience. It's like watching the movie. You come out of that experience, and you're distracted. Then I go, okay, that needs fixed, because that's a distraction. So when I'm not feeling any distractions, and you know, distractions aren't necessarily out-of-tune notes or out, something out of time. Sometimes everything works in, in favor of each other, and it, it's a moment. And if it's out of tune, I mean, man, how many great vocals were out of tune back in the day, especially, you know? But you were in the moment, and it never just, I never felt distracted. I mean, you can listen to many of the great artists, and if you, if you really sit down and want to analyze it and go, okay, that's out of tune, that's out of time. But if you're listening to the song, that's the thing. You got to be hearing the song. Once you start hearing the song, then you're getting there. When you, and you get drawn into the experience and you forget about everything. But it's to me, it's the when I when I get rid of the distractions that pull me out of the experience that that tells me now I'm within the parameters I need to be. From there, it's my you know 
It, it can be, it's down to my taste, and sometimes it's just, I just need to stop because I'm only satisfying me. I'm not satisfying anybody else. Absolutely. I, I think the more mastery you have over the details, the more they're second nature, all the technical stuff, the better you know it, the less you have to think about it. Yeah. Yeah, that's it. I mean, that's the thing is getting the technical. It's like a tool belt, you know. It's like you got to have all these tools in your belt, but you got to forget they're there, and it's just got to be second nature to pull out what you need and not think about it and not go down the rabbit hole too far on it that she pulls you off the path of the creative journey you're on within that song. And staying on that's the most important thing. And even if that means you're throwing, you know, four different things on the same track or something like that, you can always come back and and organize and and do the you know do those things do the technical stuff later but it's like get the moment and stay in the stay in that train of thought and and flush that out fully before you get distracted so let's talk a little bit about your move to LA you, you said that you were already successful in Nashville before you went to LA yeah i was having some success in Nashville I'd, in fact before right before i went to LA i had a I did a, a, a Christian record on BB and CC Winans called Heaven, and that record got quite a bit of, of recognition within the industry as a whole, especially the R and B genre. And uh, so I was getting work in LA from that record. Got it. And it just that between that and some musicians, producer musicians that I'd met that were coming to Nashville to play on tracking sessions I'd done. Were, were also, you know, into using me. And um, it just kind of, you know, it, it just was a, a little easier decision to go to L.A. at that point. And um, so that, that kind of inspired the move or at least made me feel comfortable to make the move. So you didn't go there with nothing. The momentum was already there. Yeah, there was some momentum building. You know, I wouldn't say, you know, I was like... You know, there were, well, yeah. I mean, I was very young. <laughs> you know, a few things under my belt, but it did. It did. There was there was some things happening uh, at that time. Uh, David Foster was coming to Nashville and working some because he had you know friends and reasons to come to Nashville, and he was just bringing some work when he'd come. And um, I got connected with him through uh, through Scott Hendricks, who was who's he's he's with Warner Brothers now, but. At that time, he was producing, co-producing Restless Heart, and David put one of their songs, wanted to put one of their songs in the movie, and Scott actually, he said, man, why don't you come and track this thing for me? And so I met David through that. And uh, so when David would come to town, you know, he'd call me, and I, I would work on projects with him. So I had a few sort of L.A. connections sort of happening that, that you know, like I say, made it a little, little more inspiring to, to go out, or at least comfortable. Just going to take a quick break, and I promise it's going to be quick, but it's important. I need to remind you guys, so please forgive me. This episode is brought to you by the URM Summit. Four days of networking, workshops, seminars, and hanging out with your URM friends and dozens of the industry's best pros. It's November 8th through 11 at the Las Vegas Westin, and tickets are available right now at urmsummit.com. All right, back to the episode. You know the that word networking. I, I feel like it's overused to the point where it can have a very negative connotation when you think about the wrong kind of market. I mean, networking, but really, without an ability to network well, I feel like 
this would be pretty impossible. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it, it's something, you know, I, th- I think, uh, gosh, I've, I feel like I've been the most naive person through my career. How so? Of anybody. And just not, I, I never was calculated at what I did going, oh, this would be good networking or I should do this, you know? Well, that, that's what I mean. That's the wrong way to do it. Yeah. I mean, it was, it just happened. I never thought about it. I've, I've you know, a lot of this stuff is, it's just, I, I'm amazed that just happened to be in the right place when something happened, you know? It, it doesn't make anybody more talented or less talented. It's like some people are just in the right place at the right time for whatever happened in that studio or for that project or meeting somebody. And uh, it's, it's kind of crazy when you think about it, and you can't, you can't plan those things. They just happen. Well, I mean, one thing that I heard about you is the story of how you got in with Megadeth, um, and the gym, and uh, <laughs> I mean that—that's kind of like right place, right time. But also, uh, do you mind sharing that story? I think it's a cool one. No, I mean, uh, you know, when I was working at the time, I was engineering for uh, Dan Huff because he'd started producing, and and his manager managed Megadeth and wanted to bring Megadeth to Nashville to cut a record and have Dan produce. And so um, they came to town. And I, it may not have been the first day, but it was it was at the beginning of the project. And I remember Dave Mustang going, you know, I need somebody to work out with me at the gym. You know, does anybody want to go to the gym, work out? I need a workout partner. And, you know, I, I sheepishly raised my hand and said, okay, I'm in. Because I, I was into, I, I like, you know, doing that. So uh, we would go to the gym every morning before uh, before we go to the studio. And... You know, the the interesting thing was we we had a lot of things in common and we had children the same age and, and a lot of stuff and we become really good friends through that relationship and continued to work together for many years. In fact, uh, worked on the last record they did, uh, did some work with him on that. So, man, we're like brothers. I mean, he lives in, you know, lives in the Nashville area and uh, I talk to him every few weeks and yeah, it's just it's it's funny how something like that you bond over, you know, because you talk about a lot of things when you're when you're just hanging out and just normal stuff, not music, you know. I feel like the right kind of networking is the kind that you do when there's no ulterior motive. Really, it's just another way to say make making friends. Yeah, you're right. The best collaborations I've had over the years, you know, for the most part, have been through people that I've developed friendships with that were somewhat independent of the work. And when we met, even though, you know, you could call it networking because we're both in the same industry, there was no, there was no goal for the meeting and there was, and there was no goal for our friendship, but the opportunities, the work opportunities organically grew out of our friendship. And it's in part because we like to talk to each other and be around each other so it made sense to work together yeah I mean that's it and it, it, I think you're you're right on it it's it's again it comes back to authenticity yes you know, being absolutely. authentic and who you are I mean any meeting that I've went into and you know a lot of things I've learned the hard way or learned through experience anyway I should say and you know if you're if you're really authentic to who you are and you just be yourself sometimes that works sometimes it doesn't work but the times that I've tried to, you know, go on a little more of a sales pitch, it never works. It ne- it's never sustains, you know. 
And, and the, ones, the things that sustain and last are the ones that are authentic. And I think that's the hardest thing for, for a lot of people to learn. And, you know, I'm not, I'm not a big hype person, so I never really journey down that road too much anyway. But I'm the most comfortable when, I'm, when I just be myself and I'm authentic to myself. And in the, in the circumstances that you're going, okay, this, there's, because I've, I've met with people that's outside genres that I work in. And, you know, some of the best friends and relationships seem to be formed that way. You know, when you're just authentic and you're who you are, people respect that, whether it's, you know, in their lane of what they do or not, they, they respect it. And sometimes that's the friendship that, that just bonds and things happen. Also, professionally, you don't know if something, because of that friendship, is going to happen five or ten years down the line. Oh, that's right. It, that's how a lot of these things have happened, where we've been friends for five, six, seven years, and then an opportunity that made sense came up. But yeah, because there was an authentic friendship, we were drawn to make it work. Um, opportunity that would have never happened if I didn't have that friend. And if I think if you approach something with somebody thinking there's an opportunity that can come out of this, but it's seven years from now, it's really hard to approach that in an inauthentic way because you'll you'll get tired of dealing with it. Like if it's not real, you're n- not going to sustain it for seven years right. just on yeah. the idea of a project that might happen that hasn't even been invented yet. Yeah, and you have to manage your expectations in, in any of that. When, when you're authentic in all of it, that's the biggest thing is managing your own expectations too, is, is going, okay, I'm not expecting anything out of this. Yep. It's just, this is this is just cool. And, and then something happens and it's like, okay, great. This is even better, you know? I don't know how to properly say this, but someone I know that's very close to me that I grew up with is really good friends with a billionaire. They've known each other for 30 years now. And uh, they're really good friends. And at the beginning, um, when they were just kind of in the same circles and first connecting, what this person did, which was different than everybody else, was to treat the billionaire like, like anybody else. So don't expect them to pay at dinner. You know, split the check, treat him like anybody else. And they ended up becoming really, really great friends. Like I said, it's been 30 years now. And there came a point about 10 years ago where the person I'm talking about um, needed help on a project that only somebody with that kind of resource could help on. And he helped on it. But that was 20 years into a friendship based on mutual respect, not someone yeah. trying to gold dig him like so many people around him or trying to take advantage. Because a lot of people would just think, oh, he's got enough, let him pay for dinner, you know? Right, yeah. By treating people with respect and uh, not having anything, not having any expectations, I think. That's a big yeah. one. And it's a tough one, especially when you're young because, you know, you... You really want things to work. Oh, yeah. It's tough to quiet that voice. I'm sure you've been to NAM. Oh, I have, yeah. Yeah, I think a lot of people mess this one up at NAM. 
with with the business cards and uh, oh yeah, and all that. I have some questions here from our listeners for you that I'd like to ask you. Okay, here's one from Justin L. Likens, which is. What was it like working with the Eagles? Did they have all their vocal parts already locked in before going to the studio, or were the harmony parts placed as they recorded? You know, those those guys are very prepared. Um, they they definitely have their parts together uh, before the studio, and uh, you know they they dive in deep. They're they're very detailed oriented, and uh, Don. Don's very detailed in, in how he hears things and does things. So yeah, they, they, they definitely come prepared. And most artists, that is, it's good to come prepared to the studio. Um, a lot of times if an artist doesn't come, pre- come prepared to the studio, then you would want to send them home anyway because you don't want, you want them to, uh, you know, they, they really have to ingest this. And it's like we were talking, you know, you've got to ingest this song and these things and, there's muscle memory, you know. I've worked with Jewel one time on. Well, I've worked with her a few times, but on one record we were doing some songs that she'd been singing on the road for several months, even a couple of years, and then uh, a couple of songs that were new, that were very fresh, and she hadn't done on the road. And she she had a little more, you know, took a little more time with the new songs. And she says, you know, she said, I really think this is muscle memory in my vocal cords. Absolutely, where you get used to it and and muscle memory and just ingesting the song and stuff and so it's so important to have that preparation but yeah the eagles and they're they're definitely on top of it and i can tell you when my band would record there would be some songs that we knew we were going to record that we would then play we would insert them into our live set and then you know we'd have 60 shows where we got to play this song that hadn't been recorded yet. And then when we go to record it, it would just be, we'd have such an insight into how this song is supposed to be that we just couldn't have on songs that we had never really played live. And I do think it's the muscle memory, but it also I think you get so so familiar with it on a mental level that exactly yeah. what it's supposed to be emotionally is just there. Yeah, that's it. Uh, I think Anthony Hopkins said that to prepare for a role, he reads his lines minimum 100 times each because something happens when you when you do that. And so I remember in the interview, he the person was like, 100 times? What if you're speaking through the whole movie? He's like, do, <laughs> do it anyways. Yeah. Yeah. That's what they. That's what they tell songwriters. You know, write the first hundred songs quick because they're going to suck, and then you can get past that and move on. Yeah, but I mean, it's true. You gotta. You gotta get through the through the bad ones. <laughs> Do you think the hundred song rule is true? Well, I don't know. You know, that's that's a it's that's different a good for question. everyone. I think it is. I think it just depends. You know, I you know talking about the. Eagles, I'd, I'd ask, you know, Don said that the first song in him, him and Glenn wrote together was Desperado. So I would say that the 100 song rule didn't apply to them, their co writing. But how much stuff had they done before that on their own? Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. That's a good question. Here's a question from Scott Bennett What are the biggest changes that you've seen in the industry since you started? And what do you think that you did to stay relevant and reinvent yourself during those changes? Oh man, that's a good question. Uh, that's actually a, a question I had for you that I was going to ask later. Yeah. So, Scott, you're on the right path. Yeah, um, you know, 
Man, the biggest changes, obviously, is the te- technological changes we've seen. And I know when I started, you know, all I could think about, because I, I was so hungry to learn and just so hungry to try things and experiment. And the only time I could do that was when I was in a room that was being paid for by someone else to do that. And so now to have access to what we have access to and to, to really, you know, in a, in a sense, rehearse or train your creativity, um, is, is an amazing thing. You know, as far as staying relevant, I, 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 I did continually try to, you know, reinvent yourself. I, I think that's important to do that. And I, I, I definitely went through periods. It, it became, at first, it was more time in between reinventing myself than, than it is as I, as I got further in, especially with technology. Mm-hmm. I think things are moving much quicker. Um, the thing that you have to do in, in this industry, I think, is embrace change. That's the most important thing. I, I had a lot of friends that throughout the years that did not embrace some of the changes that come along, and the, especially the, you know, the the DAW stuff and things and boy you fall out quick you know when you don't embrace things and there's there's good and bad in everything I mean you know I mean analog had good things had bad things you know the people that there's the romantic side of it but I also sit and before a tracking session sweating aligning the analog machine like five or six times to get it to play you know playback record like you want it to the playback come back as good as input or at least with the character that you wanted it to. And so I, th- I think we have a lot of challenges, you know, in, in any of it. But man, you got to embrace things and you got to continue to be inspired and and, and feel inspired by things. I, I, I You know, it's, there were times, I mean, this this is an industry that'll beat you up, you know, and, and you, you definitely get thick skin over the years from it. And I think it's how you process that and how you have to become that person to still feel energized and excited about what you do, but yet be able to take, you know, if you want to call it criticism or take a no or take a, you know what, I don't like that. Um, You have to find that processing that makes you do that in a way that keeps you excited and motivated. And that's the biggest thing, you know, staying, staying excited about what you do. If you love what you do, you know, just embrace everything around it and, uh, Move it forward. If you're a glass half empty kind of person, then you know that's that's not going to work. You it's tough. Have, yeah, it's not going to work. But as long as you stay positive in everything, and if people around you are negative, find some new people to be around. Thank you for saying you that. Know, that are excited and enthusiastic because, man, it's like a cancer. It'll just eat you up if you're around that negative, you know, energy all the time. So you just got to find those those things where you can feel inspired and people around you are excited about it. Man, I can't tell you when I'm in the when I'm tracking with musicians and stuff and they're all excited not just about what we're doing but about just about music and life in general. Man, it's a shot in the arm. You know, it just takes me to another level going, "Yeah, man, this is great. We get to do this, you know." And uh that's important. That saying that you're the product or you're the average of the five people you spend the most time with. I kind of think that's true to a degree. Yeah, like there, it is. there's a lot of truth to that. And I can't tell you how many times my life has improved by changing out the people I was around. Um, I mean, I like to think of myself as strong, but the thing is, you're not stronger than the world you live in. And if you're around really negative people, little by little, 
even if even if you're a very motivated person, very driven, talented, all that, if you get around people that are always negative, maybe it won't affect you at first. But if you spend years around them, it'll chip away at you little by little by little. And a few years out, you'll find that you're not the same person that you were. And so I think that any time that I've ended up in a scenario kind of like that, I've immediately changed my circle of uh, my circle of people, and it's yeah. just like new lease on life. It's crazy. Mm-hmm. It really works. Absolutely. So you've really focused, I think, on putting out the highest possible caliber of product throughout your career, and I think more so than you know, stardom, as much as you can be a star as an engineer, I think that what I know about your work is that it's just always the highest tier possible. Do you have a goal in mind with each project that you do? And what's your scale for success for achieving that goal? Oh, I don't, I I would probably call it more of just, it's a, a bar and a work ethic that I have and you know gosh whether whether I'm you know I'll I'll, I'll do the demos if I co-write something I'll, I'll build up the demo on it and I don't know any other way to do it than one way you know I, I, I think that's just something that's ingrained in me I've, I've got a lot of patience so I, can, I and I get I came the way I came up was with a lot of detail you know and and, and doing something and so I, I, I've got patience to sit and I can go down that rabbit hole if I, if I want to or need to and I can sit through it. But at the end of the day, it's, it really is. There's only, there, there's one level of something that you feel comfortable about. You know, there, there's, there's a story, the, a producer one time told me and had another big producer as a mentor. And he said, you know, I did, I did my first big record for a label and I took it to my mentor and I, I said, okay, here's the, here's the CD, you know, and it's, he said, but don't listen to tracks uh, 7, 9, and 11. <laughs> and the mentor said, well, why, why shouldn't I listen to them? He said, well, you know, they just didn't turn out, you know, as good as I, I really wanted them to. And so, well, your name's on them, right? <laughs> he said, well, yeah. <laughs> so, so, you know, don't stop until you get it to where you feel comfortable at. And I think, you know, there, there's that rule of going, okay, my name's on it. And, you know, you make it as good as you can get it. You still, I, I, most of the time, I never feel like I hit the mark because, but you do everything you know to do and the best you can do to get it to the level you get it to. And then you go, okay, that's, that's, and I don't know what else to do. That's it. And man, I, I think that's where you, where you got ahead. How do you balance that? You know, with between really pushing for it to be the best it can possibly be versus just spinning your tires. Like, you know what I mean? Like when people yeah. just start tweaking for the sake of tweaking and it doesn't. Yeah, I think I think you learn that, you know, line where you hit that place where, and I know that line, and usually late at night if it's getting late, I'm going, okay, I can spend six hours and try to get to where I want to go or I can spend 30 minutes in the morning and get there because I have a fresh mind. And I think sometimes it's a break from something. If you're just spinning your wheels and you got the luxury of time, time's, time's actually the biggest luxury over money in a, in a project to me, is time to get away from it. If you get away from something for a week, it's amazing how differently you hear it. And sometimes it's just a light bulb will go off, you know, and you go, oh, why didn't I hear that, you know, two weeks ago? And that's, 
that's a lot of it for me is if I can get a, if I got time to get away from it because you, you may think you've nailed it and two weeks later you happen to throw it up and listen to it and go, oh man, I definitely didn't hear that. Man, perspective is everything, isn't it? Mm-hmm. It really is. Like I say, that's the most valuable thing in a project to me is time to have that perspective. So you said you only know one way to do things, but <laughs> you switch genres a lot. You know, you go from country yeah. to rock to metal, pop. Yeah. So what do you mean that you only know one way to do things? And are you reaching for the same tools every time or do you curate? No, I, 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 yeah, the one way to reach things is, is only referencing the bar. Got it. Like getting to a place where I feel comfortable that, okay, that's that's good enough, you know, that's 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 at least we're we're on the we're on the field now, you know, and uh, everything else is. I mean, music's music's emotion to me, and when you're feeling the emotion, if you know from out of country, or if you're feeling it out of metal, it's a different emotion that you're feeling, but you're trying to bring across that experience and that emotion, you know, with the with the tools you have, you know, EQ compression, whatever it is, and and from the production and. They they really to me genres are not that different from making a record in a sense because it, it's it's it comes down to the experience and the emotion and what you're pulling across and getting that song across to the listener. So the genre is just basically the vehicle that the song arrives in, but it still needs to arrive basically in top form to the yeah, whoever's going to consume it. Yeah, it's, it's about making an effective record. So I guess on a technical level, do you reach for the same tools every time or do you curate your toolkit to fit the production needs of the project? Man, I've never been a rubber stamp guy, so it's, 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 I, I, I like the creative process. And I, that's one of the things I enjoy about what I do is, is getting to be creative. So I like to, you know, there, there's some things you reach for that you go, okay, I know that works and that does this. But in general, I like to build it out, you know, and sometimes experiment and look for those things or something new, a new way to get there. Um, that's to me. That's that's what I enjoy about it. Is it's just not, you know. I know that some people pull up a template and plug it in and go, okay, there it is after an hour or something. But I'm not that guy, <laughs> you know. I just can't go there because I can't do the factory. Uh, I've I got into some some periods of my career where. You know, you do a single, and it's like, okay, you do these three things to make that single. Don't do it. Don't don't step out the t- side the lines. You know, um, stay in the lane, and that can get that that your creativity definitely gets muted to some degree in that. You know, and so I think the creative process, if it's mixing, you know, I like to build it up. I, I think that's 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 just the fun of it. It's like why I'm in it, why I do this. You know. And I mean, also the fact that you have explored the uh, the factory style. You know, you tried it. You don't like it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No. I felt like my creativity definitely it wasn't as fun. No. It gets old, and I think you see that in all parts of the industry. Whether you're a musician, if you're a studio musician, you know, a lot of times if you do session after session in the same genre. It can be routine, you know, and maybe some of the same licks and, you know, a lot of the chord changes are the same and, and it, it becomes a bit of a factory. And I think as a musician, you want to get out and that's why you see a lot of people want to get on the road and play some too or 
do projects that are more ex- or just experiment more in things and, and do different things. I think you got to keep that creativity flowing. Otherwise, you, in a way, you stop growing, you know? I find that if I do the same thing, and this is, this is across the board in life. This was true when I was a guitar player. It was true with set lists. It was true with production. It's true in business. It's just true that if I get too, I guess, too wrapped up doing the same thing over and over and over again, there, it's like there's a part of my brain that goes to sleep and it almost feels like there's a blanket on it. And I don't know how to describe it, but, but that light bulb, you know, that light bulb that all the great ideas come from just doesn't really turn on. However, there, there is a flip side, which is that I think that good habits, like a good daily routine is yeah. really, really important. Um, so, you know, so there are certain things where I do think it's important to kind of standardize, but that's more with like waking up and getting exercise <laughs> and drinking uh, enough water and things like that. But oh, that yeah. aside, I find that if I don't introduce something new every so often, like if I don't take in a new idea or try something brand new or whatever, if I don't do it like within a, usually within a week or 10 days, if I don't do something extremely mind expanding, uh, and I don't mean drugs, um, then I kind of start to stagnate and I start to lose interest in what I'm doing and I start phoning things in. So I have to be always developing myself or everything suffers. Yeah, I think the routine stuff you're talking about is is discipline. Yes, and I think discipline's good. I'm definitely. I, th- I think staying healthy and exercise makes you even more creative. The energy you get from just that lifestyle, you know. And I've 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 talked to. I mean, it's a regular part of my life anyway. And I've got friends in the industry that you know. I've I've you know got them on the path to that and it's like well I don't know if I got time. Well, you know what? You're going you're going to get more work done in a shorter amount of time because you're going to be more alert, more energized and feel more creative. And uh, so far it's it's been proven, you know, with with the it's folks true. I've talked to. So Well, I made a huge change in my life where I completely changed my lifestyle a few months ago to eating healthy and exercising, all that stuff. And the change has been not subtle, not subtle at all. It's incredible. And yeah, the the thing is also I sleep a lot more, which is good because I used to have pretty bad insomnia, but I sleep more and I do spend quite a few hours per week on exercise, um, almost like a part-time job, but I get a ton more done when I'm working for my company and not just that. Yeah. It's better work and I'm way better at handling the hard stuff mentally. Yeah. Th- there's nothing bad at all that comes out of it. Uh-uh. No, it's 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 really good and and it, I think it's it's it helps you yeah, it, it keeps your head in a good spot where it helps you sustain a career and uh you know, do more stuff. So how often do you exercise? 
<laughs> I do. I, I go. I go six days a week. Nice. This is actually very interesting to our community. Um, we have a lot of health-minded people who listen to this podcast, and daily routines are something that come up a lot, um, especially in our in our private Facebook group, because we all know that this can become cave life if if you're not careful about it. You can end up sitting down twelve hours a day eating yeah. garbage and. Just you know that over a period of a few years can can wreak havoc on your on your life. Um, so it's always cool to hear from producers and engineers who have gotten that part figured out. So if you don't mind, I'd like to talk to you about that for a few minutes. Yeah, no, absolutely. And you know, me and Nathan Chapman, we're, we're good buddies, and you know, he's he's into the routine too, and. Um, you know, we we really both have talked a lot about this and how to get this message out to the community of, uh, to try to just encourage people to to have a little more healthier lifestyle that it, that it does increase your creativity and stuff. So yeah, I'd love to talk about it. So you work out six days a week. Yeah. So you know, my, my biggest thing was creating a habit, a consistent habit for me, and and I tell people this all the time, and uh, you know. It's, I think it's a little funny, but when I when I first, you know, I, and I've been a roller coaster all my life, up and down, trying to get into it, fall out of it, get into it, fall out of it. So now I've I've been consistent for seven years or so now. Nice, that's I'd and, say that's uh, consistent. Yeah. So when I first got into it, though, it was like, okay, I've got to create a habit. I got to find a time that won't be interrupted. And so for me, that was going, okay, I'm going to commit to getting up early. How early? You know, five thirty, six o'clock. Fuck yeah, that's the magic time, man. That is. I, I set my alarm. I got up for a week. I just and at that time I, I went to the YMCA, so I would go to the parking lot, drive to the parking lot, sit in the parking lot, make myself sit there, you know, for five or ten minutes, and then I go home. It's like I didn't even want to go in. I was just going. I'm going. Okay, I'm going to get used to getting up. That's it. And then I started going in, walking the track, started adding to the routine and, and you know, built built a, a routine that I like to do. But it was for me it was forming a habit and putting that putting that time in a place where emails, phone calls, nothing interrupted me. And uh, you know, built on that. And so now I I do. I I've got a routine I love doing and I do it uh, you know, I'll go to the gym from I mean, it's built up to a little more now where I'm an hour and a half or so each day. But but I love going and I get up and I do it and I feel so much better afterwards. And it just energizes me for the day. I, I eat a fairly healthy lifestyle. Uh, you know, I'm, I, 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 I practice a, a vegan gluten-free lifestyle, you know, from an eating perspective, which sounds pretty limited, but... It, it, it's not after, these days. After... A, after a few weeks, it, it, I figured out everything, and it's not. And I feel so much better with that clean of a diet now. You know, if I if I want something every now and then, yeah, why not? You know, have a meal of whatever you want. But in general, I, I keep it pretty clean. Um, I, I do. Uh, I'll make uh, smoothies usually for for breakfast, maybe oatmeal. But I'll always have a smoothie, a couple of smoothies a day with about a. 35 grams of protein, something like that. And um, I use collagen peptide protein. Uh, I think that's really good for your gut. And it's not vegan, but I think it's really good for your gut and your joints. 
So I, I use that, and you have to trigger it with some BCAAs, branched chain amino acids, too. Helps it digest better. But uh, yeah, so I mean, in general, that's that's kind of what I follow. I've I've, I've I've gone in and out of following my macros closely to just kind of knowing what stays in that range. And by that mean, I mean uh, proteins, fats, and carbs, balance in that. But yeah, so I've I've gotten kind of kind of all into it, you know, and and enjoy it, and it's it's part of my routine. So when you would fall out of it back in the past, were you as were you quite as detailed as you are now about everything, or is part of what makes it work for you that you're all in, like you just said? Yeah, I mean, I, I don't think I was. I got into some detail, but not as much as I am now. I mean, I've really looked into a lot of things, and and you know, looked into you know, just naturopath stuff, homeopathic, you know, things, and uh, just looking at what foods do what for your body, what foods heal things, and if if something's going on, then I'll eat for uh, you know, I'll eat foods that address those issues. And uh, the, the, the diet I follow, too, is also a pretty low inflammation type of diet, which is really good. I, I think everybody should, you know, pay attention to inflammation because that's, boy, that's definitely a biggie and causing a lot of, a lot of issues in, in everybody. So, you know, I, I, I stay pretty, pretty close to that. What you said about habit forming, I think, is very key. I know that when I did it, it also started with waking up super early which is really hard for me, but that was the first thing I did too. It was just wake up at around 5.30, between 5, 5.30, and just get that under my belt. Because creating a yeah. new habit takes a lot of mental energy. And mm-hmm. so I would put all my mental energy into just one thing. And then once it's a habit, you no longer have to expend that kind of energy on it. And you can move on to the next thing. That's why I think that people fail when they try to add multiple new habits all at once. They just don't have the energy to do all that change all at once. So you grab one thing, one thing you can do and make it a habit. And then within three weeks or six weeks or something, you know, they say 66 days, but I find that it's (laughs) a little bit less than that if you're really dedicated. But, uh, You'll stop thinking about it. It'll just happen, and then you yeah. can add that. Then you'll have that mental energy to add the next thing. So I wasn't into exercise, so I did something. I was like, "What exercise will I do?" That like I need to figure out something I'll actually do. Um, and so I just got this under desk bike, and I was like, "I'll watch movies and do this. That I can do." And I did that. Um, so suddenly I was doing this for like two hours a day. Yeah. Um, and after a few weeks of that, it just started to feel like not enough. So from there, the gym membership happened. And yeah, you know, on and on and on and so forth. But yeah, that's exactly how it worked for me too. Yeah, that's the deal. You know, they, they, they say in the beginning, just move. Just do something to move, you know. And... uh that's it. It's, it's, it's so much of it comes from the diet side. If you're looking to lose weight or do something like that, I mean, it really is just kind of balancing. It turns, you know, bottom line, it turns into calories in, calories out. Uh, there's there's definitely other uh, intricacies to it, you know. But um, yeah, 
You just got to start a habit and start moving. And you will start to feel better. I mean, it, it's not easy in the beginning, but you just got to find those little things that motivate you and be consistent. And then you'll miss it when you don't do it. Absolutely. And you'll really start to notice, when you start to notice that your work is getting easier, that's when you'll be that much more motivated to keep going, I think. Yeah. If you stick it out long enough to where where the rest of your life is starting to improve, yeah. that's the best motivator. What about sleep? I know that engineers are notoriously bad at it, and I have been for years and got it solved recently, but what's, what's your sleep like? Uh, it's pretty good. I mean, when you get up early and, and work out, by the end of the day, you're, you're ready to sleep. That's the good thing about exercise is it'll, it'll let your body sleep at night because it, it wants to. And, you know, the, the other side is clearing your mind and, you know, just being able to relax at night. I, I always, I'll stop work an hour before I think I'm going to, you know, head to bed because I just want, if I'm sitting in front of the screen working on something, it, it, I can't go right to bed. I have to have that hour to just let my, my brain and everything just sort of calm down and come down and make some notes of what I'm thinking about so I won't forget stuff. Because I, 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 that's what I, I, I go, man, if I don't write this down, I'll forget it in the morning. So I make some notes and just clear, basically clear my plate, you know. And by that time, I'm, I'm, I'm ready to, you know, go to bed and my body is ready to sleep because it's, it's had its day, you know. Awesome. Well, Jeff Balding, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. It's been enlightening and awesome to talk to you. Man, my pleasure. Enjoy. You've been listening to the Unstoppable Recording Machine Podcast. To ask us questions, make suggestions, and interact, visit urm.academy and press the podcast link today.